Hey folks, welcome to Borrow Wisdom. I've got an extraordinary guest, Chandra Irvin, the Executive Director for the Center of Peace and Spiritual Renewal. Chandra, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's delightful to be here with you. Uh, the last time we got to spend some meaningful time together was a talk back for our production of Measure for Measure in the fall of 2019. And then the world happened. The world happened. <laughs> Two public health crises later, we are in a really different place than we were at that time. So I'm I'm just so eager to have this conversation. And if I could just start by asking you, tell, tell us about the Center of Peace and Spiritual Renewal and the work that you do there. How was that established? Interestingly enough, I came out of seminary and at my age, I was wondering why I was even in seminary, except for I just knew in my spirit I had been called to go. So while I was there, I was introduced to uh, someone I probably should have known, but I had not known. And that was Howard Thurman, the great mystic, theologian, community builder, prophet, who had been the spiritual guide for a lot of people in the social justice and, and civil rights movement. And when I was introduced to him, I realized, ah, this has a lot to do with why I am here in seminary. Because he, he merged the, the practical everyday and the spiritual in such a way that it just made all kind of sense to me. And it helped me to expand the way I was thinking about how to do that kind of work. So once I got out of seminary, I knew I was supposed to do something with it. I didn't know exactly what, but I pulled together a presentation, shared it with a few people in our community. I actually shared it with three leaders in our community on separate occasions. And then the president of Spalding University, Tori Merton McClure, found out about it. And she said, tell her to come and see me. And I did. And we sat down. And after five minutes, she says, we need that here. We need that here. And she was po pointing, you know, at the document that I was sharing with her. And then she said, can I go get the HR director? And she jumped <laughs> up. And it, it, as is her way, you know, once she sees something and she knows that that is Something in her tells her, this is what we need to be doing. She activates right away. And so she jumped up and she was on her way to go get the HR director. She looked her back at me and she said, uh, maybe I should listen for more first, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so she came back, she sat down and about another five minutes passed and she said, okay, can I go get her now? <laughs> <laughs> and the next thing I knew, we were walking across campus. She was introducing me to various deans and so forth. And, you know, I wasn't at the time, I wasn't looking for a lot. I just wanted others to understand and be introduced to some of these things that I was being introduced to. And the reason was because I thought that they would make a significant difference in the approach that we were taking to try to bring about social transformation. And the work that the center does is so wonderfully layered, both in the spiritual and the social justice spaces. Can you tell us some about that? Yes. So we exist primarily to help individuals and groups 
organizations even beyond our community to start to reflect on and expand their thinking about who they are and to start to reflect on how to facilitate the both the individual and collective journeys towards common ground, okay? And part of that has to do with understanding who you are, what you're really for, what do you really want? We say we want certain things, but often we really need to examine that at a whole nother level because we really are not honoring in our behaviors the things that we say we want. And as someone who is known for guiding people in their exploration of spiritual values and individual purpose and what those contributions might look like to a broader community, how are we doing as a, as a culture along those lines? Where are we in this progression or circle or what's happening with us? Yeah. Well, here's, I've just written something about this and, and, and one of, in a book that has to do with recognizing the tensions that we face in these particular difficulties that we are, we find ourselves in right now. And I think there, there are lots of tensions. One of them that I think is really significant is this, and it is the tension between what I call transaction and transcendence. Now, transaction can also be identified and understood as our focus on doing, our focus on trying to achieve remedies, you know, to execute remedies to our social problems. And then transcendence has to do with more with being and understanding how do we get to a place where we are really liberated to do what we really need to do? So transcendence, I, I also refer to it as internal readiness, developing internal readiness. So you got those these two things, developing internal readiness, and you have executing social remedies, okay? I think, and, and both of these things are positive. And they go together just like inhaling and exhaling go together. But we tend to, some of us in our society, I think, tends to be focused on, okay, how do we execute these external <laughs> remedies, right? And we get really, really focused on those things. And we end up in the, the downside of that because there are also negatives associated with over-focusing on remedies when you're not really ready on the deeper level in our very beings, in our assessment of who we really are, we're just not ready. And so we end up taking shallow about actions that are about a half inch deep. And then we wonder, I thought we fixed that. Why are we talking about that again? Aren't we in the post-racist era? Well, no, we're not in it because we haven't done the in, we haven't done the internal work. We haven't really looked deeply at not just what happened in the past. And that's one area. I mean, of course, I it's my estimation that we haven't done that nearly well enough. I mean, we just we have so many truths that have not been told, and so many mistruths or lies that have been told. So I, I think we 
fall, we tend to err on the side of experiencing all the negative things that are associated with those over-focusing on remedies without readiness. Now, on the other side, there can be also a difficulty, a fallacy in thinking that if I just do all, you know, if I just really reflect on who I am as an individual, or if we just as a society just reflect on who we are and get very kind of pious about this whole thing, then we'll be all right. But we and, and that, that is important to reflect on those things, but we can overdo that and not do anything from you know to remedy the problem. And then we're wondering again why we're still in the same situation. So I think it's, it is an institutional and societal issue, but it also plays out on an individual level. And we can't wait on the institutions to change because institutions are made up of people. <laughs> and we've got to do it as individuals. We can't, you know, sometimes I, I had the other day somebody say to me, would you come and help us work with some leaders who want to change a large scale organization, right? But they haven't done their own work. So it's hard, it would be, I think, impossible for them to do what they want to do without doing their own work first. And it doesn't mean that you have to wait until they finish their own work, because I think I think all of our work is, you know, is continuous. I'm still doing my own work. Yes, that kind of perfectionism of until it's exactly right, I can't move on to another effort. But I boy, that is so I am reminded of. Still waters run deep with you, how cl- your clarity. Can you tell us how this has been manifest? You served as a strategic advisor for the Charleston Illumination Project and have helped really initiate the Synergy Project here in Greater Louisville. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of that and where do you see that work going now in terms of implementation or remedying as well as increasing insight uh, in terms of the internal readiness? Sure. So in uh, 2015, when the Emmanuel Nine, those wonderful nine individuals and others who were were there during the prayer service, when Dylan Roof comes in and he shoots them. After that happened, I was, it was Probably a couple of weeks after it happened, I was on the way with one of my colleagues to Boulder, Colorado, and we met each other in Denver. And on our drive, our Uber drive from Denver to Boulder, we were talking about the situation. She's from Charleston, and she was living there then. Her name was Margaret. And so Margaret and I were talking about it, and she was just in tears. She cried and cried just about the whole way from Denver to Boulder. And she said that she's a white woman. And she said, I just haven't done enough. I haven't done enough. I need to do more. And she said to me, Chandra, will you help? I said, sure, Margaret. Margaret and I had known each other for a number of years and had worked together and so forth. I said, sure, Margaret. I wanted to help. I didn't know how I was going to help. She didn't know how I was going to help, but I just said yes. And about two weeks after that, she calls me and she says, 
we're on, let's go. And I said, we're on for what? <laughs> and she, <laughs> she then tells me that uh, she had been doing some work with the uh, chief of police and some of the commanders there in Charleston, and that he had awakened probably the morning before at about 3 a.m. and had had this vision of what needed to happen in Charleston. And so he went to his office and he typed all this up, but he didn't know how he could execute it, but he had this idea. And so he had called her and said, let's, let's do this. And then she called me and said, let's go. And we got one other colleague who joined us. And so we became the consultants working on this major project in Charleston that was designed to bring police and residents together and strengthen that relationship. Now, roll that forward, and I was talking to the mayor here one day about what we were doing. He asked me how I was doing. I was just telling him what I had been doing in Charleston. He said, well, maybe we need something like that here. Time moved past, months, years, about probably a year more, and he eventually called and said, can we come together and have a conversation? We did with some other people who were in Louisville. And he said that he wanted to avoid what had just happened in Charlottesville. And he thought that he wanted to have some members of the community talk about it. And so that eventually led to our starting the Illumination Project in Louisville, which was modeled after the project that was in Charleston. The project in Charleston was extraordinarily successful. Police and residents came together in powerful ways. And not only did police and residents do that, residents across the city started to come together. People who would never have been talking together started to invite each other to one another's events and one another's homes. And you know, the relationships became not just surface, but genuine. So that was a, a major difference there. And we started working on that here with the Synergy Project last fall. We actually began early last year in 2019, the beginning of 2019. By the fall, we were actually ready to roll out the project. And we did a soft rollout in the fall. And then in, this, in January of this year, we started the major rollout. Again, it was to bring police and residents together in ways that would strengthen that relationship. People were somewhat skeptical when they first would come. And if you would imagine, this is how it was. First of all, people in Louisville had said, well, we've already done, we've had so many conversations already. We don't need to have any more conversations. And, you know, they were just put out with the whole idea of, we don't want any listening. <laughs> you know, we don't need to listen. We've already said what we need to say. And so the decision was made. We won't just have, listen, we're going to have action sessions and that's what we're going to call them. So what would happen is we would get police and residents together. It would be, let's imagine a ballroom and the ballroom has many tables in it. And at each table, there's a facilitator. There is at least one police officer and they're members of the community. And they're having these structured conversations, but also fluid conversations about what are their hopes? Well, first of all, what are their concerns about the relationship between police and residents? What are their hopes? What are their experiences? 
And then what actions can police take to strengthen the relationship and what actions can residents take to strengthen the relationship? And what happened was they would put these actions up on the walls and then people would go around, they'd vote on the most powerful actions. And then all of those, all of that information would be captured and it was given then to a research group who would pull it all together with the idea of now afterwards, we start to take action on these things. So it was extraordinarily successful at the beginning. People would come, they'd have reservations. You could see the reservations in their faces when they first would come, but they had had enough faith in somebody who had invited them to come to come. And when they would be finished, they would be really uh, just excited about what had just happened. Sometimes there would be police officers and residents who were at tables. And, and on, on a couple of occasions, there were a police officer would be at a table and just so happened to be at a table with somebody that had they had arrested. And after the session, they would be hanging around talking. There were many people who would, you know, they would start off one way and, you know, they'd be laughing sometimes. But there were also a lot of serious discussions about what needed to happen. And we had 25 sessions lined up. We had already had 17 and we had 25 more already planned and more in the queue to be planned because every time we'd have one, somebody would say, I'd like to host one. And so we, these were going on all around in this community. And then COVID came. And then we learned about what happened with Breonna Taylor. Well, with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And uh, right before then, you know, we learned about what happened to Ahmaud Aubrey. So we pulled, we, we knew at some point it was important for us to pull back. We, we had to allow what was going on to proceed and we would need to revamp, re rethink the way we were approaching this. And at this juncture, are we on pause in the reimagining phase? In some ways, you would say, yes, we're on pause, but in other ways, no, we're not. So we are no longer, con obviously, conducting sessions like we were before. We did one virtual session. One of the uh, councilmen asked us to do one, and we did, it, did that. But with things continually heating up, one thing after another, after another, after another, we just, knew, we just need to pull back all together. So we did, and we started to get requests from people to say, I, I need to know how to, I don't even know how to engage in these conversations, not with police, but with people in my family around these issues, because I've got people in my family who have a totally different perspective than I have. We can't even talk. I wish, somebody else would say, I wish I knew how to um, facilitate conversations with people in my civic group or my church or my whatever. And so, or, or my, in my corporate setting. All right. And so what we decided we would do is develop a series that would involve skill building so people would understand, here's some skills that can help. Here's some approaches that can help and have them. So we have now a five-part series that we will be rolling out in the next two weeks. And so we, we have one for members of the community. And simultaneously, we'll have one for police 
They won't be, you know, together. They will be separate at this point. Because, but one of the other things that we discovered was that police and residents, even as they were trying to address some of these issues, we had about, let me just back up and say, we had about 10% of the, no, few, fewer than 10% of the police officers involved in Synergy before we had to stop. So it wasn't a large number, but those who were involved were able to do some I think some meaningful, having some meaningful interactions with protesters and so forth. All of that is, well, it's not been publicized very much, but those kinds of things have been happening in the background. But at any rate, there were other officers who were engaged in conversations with people in the community, and we could just see this is not working. They don't know how they were officers trying to, I think in all in positive, with a positive intent, okay? Trying to explain, here's what we go through as officers. Here's, what, here's what's going on with us. So one officer in one situation I'm aware of, I, was, I happened to be there, was talking about after hearing what a person in the community had said about what the people were experiencing, how difficult it was, and how soul-wrenching and all this kind of thing. And this person's talking about, you know, of course, the death of Breonna Taylor and all that goes with that. And the officer said, I understand, I understand. But what you don't understand is what we go through. I said, urine thrown on me. And I, I believe he thought that if others understood that, that it would make, make everybody say, okay, well, we, maybe we can equate these two things. But, you know, instead... All it did was make things worse because people in the community cannot equate having urine thrown on them with somebody's death, with centuries of oppression. So that also let us know that, yeah, we do need to work on this. We need to figure out and help people. And we need to figure out as a society, as a community, how do we engage with one another? How do we say what we mean in ways that are going to make a difference and in ways that matter to other people? How do you say what you mean in ways that matter to other people? How do you figure out what are your lethal listening <laughs> behaviors and get and pay attention to those and put those aside? How do you ask questions in a way that open the door to conversation rather than slam the door? That kind of thing. So. Well, thank you for the incredible work and uh, strategic thinking about knowing a five-part series to help people find skill-building tools to continue the internal readiness piece is going to be as essential as finding the way to execute social remedies, because it's clearly a multidimensional piece, <laughs> or a multidimensional approach, rather, that's going to help move us towards anything that looks like true reconciliation and coming to some truths about where we are and uh, where we have been and where we're going. And on that front, we know uh, what you described about the Charleston shooting that happened in June 17th and 2015, October 24th, 2018, we had a tragedy outside of a 
supermarket and inside a supermarket, Kroger, on the East End, that was preceded by that assailant trying to get into the doors of a Baptist church in Jeffersonville, clearly trying to continue the cycle of what had just even previously happened just in October, I believe, of 2018 with the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. People take assailants taking spiritual places to enact violence and perverting the space, like even praying with those participants before doing that violence. And we have heard calls to to action for intimidation in um, spaces that people might vote for their liberties and protections for all Americans by choosing leadership. We've heard calls to action that are kind of engaging a kind of race baiting, putting people in danger of their own health through the public health crisis with the COVID-19 as well, saying not to be afraid of that. And also calls to suggest that we have to stand by and be ready for actions such as the 13 men who've just been derailed those efforts towards uh, kidnapping the governor of Michigan Mm -hmm. and initiating what appeared from federal officials, the effort to create a civil war. So in the face of looking at these spiritual, political, and cultural spaces and the kind of way that that is being motored, how does one who has the experiences you do in working with a diversity consortium with big business, with Fortune 500 companies, as well as universities and public communities like Charleston and Louisville, how do you see all of those things intersecting in terms of, is this again a situation where we need a more multidimensional approach to have both internal readiness and remedies to address things that are so explosive and so kind of coalescing simultaneously? Because it all seems like it's, these are certainly things that have been building for many, many years and seems to have a pattern with other historical context of systems of oppression and systems of uh, domination. But how do we navigate those in the 21st century with all the social identity evolution that's happening and the fluidity of those social identities? Yeah, that's that's a significant question because it does involve looking at so much that is going on, recognizing that there is no simple one answer. We cannot simplify it. But we also cannot be so afraid of its complexity that we get paralyzed and do nothing. So one of the things I found to be really helpful is identifying a place for those who are ready. Okay, so one of the things I want to acknowledge is not everybody is ready. Not everybody cares. Some people, it's just not time to just expect that they're going to come to the table and try to do something to remedy this in any positive way, okay? They're just not there. They have a whole different agenda. But there are people, and I think that there are a significant number of people who do have a positive and hope for our future, and they're willing to do something to try to help. Sometimes they don't know what that is, 
but they do think they are ready to try to do something to help. And so identifying with one those people, among those people, and among those institutions, identifying a shared common goal. What is our shared goal or our shared vision? What do, What is it? What does it look like? What are people doing when we get there? What are people feeling when we get there, et cetera? Those are the types of questions. But often what happens is we are not looking at a shared goal. We're looking at individual values. So somebody may say, my value is, they may say, my goal is justice. Okay. Great goal, right? Somebody else may say, my goal is reconciliation. Okay. And they can sometimes seem like they're at odds with each other. I don't care about reconciliation. I just want justice. I'm not so concerned about justice. I'm really concerned that we know how to reconcile with one another. Okay. Well, the question becomes, well, what is the greater purpose of justice? What is the greater purpose of reconciliation? Can we find a mutual place of vision and goal that we share? And then once we find that, how then do we develop our actions around both of those things? Now, that's just one example. There are many because there are many tensions that exist. And, and I think of them as polarities. That's the work that I've been doing and for many decades now. And I uh, was introduced to a way of thinking about this from a, a gentleman and a colleague, Barry Johnson. But there are many tensions that are at odds with each other, seemingly at odds with each other, but they really need each other in order to achieve the greater goal. So if I am only focused on, let's just say, um, I just focus on justice, then what I may be inclined to do is say, okay, all right, we're going to focus on justice, justice, justice. Well, then we end up with over-policing and oppression. Okay, justice without mercy leads to that. Or on the other hand, we can have such a focus on reconciliation without any truth telling, without any justice, that we end up with people feeling like they are, you know, they they resent. There's a simmering resentment, and it stays there because nobody's told the truth. We've just been merciful, and it is as if you say, if we 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 get we go we're just going to focus on the forgiveness but and we want you to forget but i heard um I, I was reading something the other day it was by rabbi steve leader and he said he was talking about a mystic who said he was talking about forgiveness and forgetting he said you can take a a nail a hole in a wooden chest. And he said, then you can pull the nail out. And when you pull the nail out, it's okay. But the hole is still there. You cannot forget because the hole is still there. But you can pull out, which will help us to come to healing. We can imagine a new future once we forgive, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you were going to forget. Beautifully stated. 
You and your husband, Matt, have three adult children who are artists of note. And I'm just really curious to hear from you, where do you think this came from with two parents who do the work that both you and Nat do? Did you expose your children to the arts? Is there intersection with the work and diversity piece, human relations and polarity thinking? Is there intersection with art in a way that this is a natural course that your uh, children found that as their path? Hmm. Yes, I, I, I think it's natural. I don't, and my husband and I, we recognize that anything that's really great about our children, it's not just because of us, it's because there's been, you know, we really believe in the village and we've benefited from the village of people who have loved and helped cultivate our children. Our children now are full grown adults. Uh, we actually have a our first grandbaby at this point. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. But yes, the arts have mattered. My husband in particular is an artist. He's a composer. He has a doctorate degree in music composition. And so he has, you know, he's, he's done a lot there. But our children heard, uh, they knew the work that I was doing over the years that had to do with human relations. And they were aware also of the work my husband was doing. Uh, while he, actually he has a doctorate in music, but he's, for many years, he was a columnist and he wrote about these difficult issues that we confront in terms of how we relate to one another. So what they have done is they've integrated this into the work that they do our daughter, Jovian, has a business called Jovian Zane Inc. And it she focuses on how, how to help people and organizations live and work on purpose. And in many instances, she's she's worked with them on issues as they relate to race and other areas of diversity and equity and inclusion and so forth. Not exclusively that, but primarily based on purpose. Purpose. And, and I, I, you know, I believe that is critical because it's a part of us understanding who we are, why we are here. And it helps to anchor us to be free to do what we need to do. And our sons, much of the work that they're doing, too, supports the message of equity, respect, freedom of the soul, freedom to be, for people to be who they really are and not be encumbered by what other people think they ought to be. And they've written music that supports the movement. So yeah, they're, they're intricately involved. And I think a lot of it just comes also from their, their own natural appreciation for, and this is one of the things we, we really impress, and this is what sustains both of us as well, is a reality that you know, regardless of whatever we're called to do, we're called to love, to love God, to love ourselves, to love others as we love ourselves. And when we can do that, everything flows together. It's not easy always, but if we can, if we can focus on that, that is a major move in the right direction. I can't think of a better way to finish our conversation. Thank you so much, Chandra Irvin. 
for your extraordinary work and service. This has been a conversation with Chandra Irvin, Executive Director for the Center of Peace and Spiritual Renewal. And we are so grateful for you to share your wisdom with us here. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Join us next week for another episode of Borrowed Wisdom Folks. Thanks. Borrowed Wisdom is a community-supported project of Actors Theatre Direct, the virtual home of Actors Theatre of Louisville. It's hosted by Executive Artistic Director Robert Barry Fleming. Learn more about Actors Theatre of Louisville at actorstheatre.org.